Well, how are you guys? How are my Michigan fans? How are my Michigan State fans? Uh, you know, it's like we have a time of prayer at the end of the service every, every week. And if you need it, it's going to be down here after the service. I get it. I understand it. But let's just remember we're all one in Christ when we're here, okay? All right. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here at Northridge. We're so glad you guys are here. I want to welcome those of you online as well. We're uh, just tickled to death that you're with us. And we've been in this series called Upside Down. And I'm just going to say it because I think we need to honor Pastor Brad. These past few weeks have been unbelievable. Um, I've always known that Pastor Brad is like an elite teacher, preacher. But to do and lay out what he has, uh, which have been some really difficult truths. I know I personally have been really convicted some the past couple weeks. Uh, and he did it in such a loving and grace-filled way. I'm not surprised by that, but it still impresses the heck out of me. And uh, we're really blessed to be able to be a part of a church like this with a pastor like him who doesn't avoid the tough things, you know? So... One of the verses he kind of laid out for us last week, I want to kind of start with, was Judges 21, 25. That says, in those days, Israel had no king and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And that really, for me, kind of sums up so much of what he's been talking about over these past few weeks, right? The, there's another passage in the book of Proverbs that talks about this idea that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. It's all about this capacity that we have as human beings for self-deception, to convince ourselves that something's gonna work even though God has said, eh, it's probably not gonna work out so well, right? We have that ability. And whenever you just kinda do whatever's right in your own eyes, that's what makes this world that we live in these days feel so upside down. And I am, again, I'll say it again, so proud of Pastor Brad and kinda how he's guided us through that because the reality is, um, when you're in ministry, you're a pastor, teacher, speaker, you learn real early on uh, in your career that there's certain topics that people love to hear about. Uh, and they'll, you know, they'll tweet them and post your quotes on Instagram and all that kind of stuff. Then there's other topics that aren't quite as popular, right? And you step on some toes. And sometimes we want to avoid those topics, right? Because we're kind of in the business of wanting to lift you up and encourage you. But there's also a human side of being a pastor or a teacher where something inside of you kind of wants to be liked. So it's hard sometimes diving into those controversial issues. One of those issues that I learned real early on in ministry that people didn't like to talk about was money. And there were multiple reasons why that was the case, right? I mean, let's be honest, wasn't that long ago. Really, all throughout hit, over 2,000 years of Christianity, this has happened. But you can see kind of spikes in history. And back in like the 80s, 90s, there was a slew of pastors and churches who took the topic of money and manipulated it for their own personal gain. And there was a bunch of us that watched that happen, and we were like, oh, we don't want to be lumped in with those guys, so we're just going to kind of avoid that topic, which was a shame, right? But it happened. And to be honest with you, another reason why we often kind of avoid the topic of money in the church is because it's probably one of the most prevalent idols in society today, and people don't like it when you mess with their idols, right? So all that being said, 
while there are some of us, including myself, who sometimes want to avoid the topic of money in the church, the one person who never avoided this topic was God himself. If you're familiar at all with scripture, Old and New Testament combined, the Bible talks about money about 800 times. And some people say, yeah, 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 but like a lot of that is just old fashioned. It's not relevant for, for today. Let's just focus on what Jesus had to say. Let's just focus on his words. You can do that if you want. Jesus himself talked about money about 25% of the time. About 25% of what's recorded in scripture of Jesus talking had to do around this subject of money. And so it's really hard to completely avoid this topic. Uh, years ago, it's probably at least 10 years ago, I read a book called How to Be Rich. And it was an interesting concept because to be honest with you, all the books I had read about money up to that point were really focused on how to get rich. But this book was about how to be rich. And the premise was, it's not about what you have, it's about what you do with what you have. And today we're gonna look at a passage, I'll be honest, this is kind of a two-part message, so it's gonna feel a little bit like to be continued at the end, because it is. But we're gonna spend the next two weeks really just looking at this one little passage of scripture. We're gonna look at two of the verses today, and we'll add a verse next week. But the problem with this passage, it's so practical, right? First Timothy chapter six starts in verse 17, very practical. But it starts with this phrase, command those who are rich in the present world, right? The problem with that passage is everybody reads that first line, command those who are rich, and we think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I'm good, I can skip these next three verses, right? I know there's some rich people out there, but I'm not one of them, so I'm good, I'll take a pass on this. So I have to do a little bit of work before we even get to this text to help you understand that it actually applies to pretty much every single one of us, right? So. Are you rich? I would say, yeah, you are rich. In fact, how rich are you? If you own a car, you're in the top 6% of wealth in the world. If you make $37,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of wealth in the world. If you own a house, you're in the top 3% of wealth in the entire world. The truth is, not for all of us, the vast majority of us, we're in the top 1% of wealth in the world. And so the question is not really how do you get rich? You are rich. The question is how can you be rich? And we're rich. Like it's hard for us to understand and really wrap our mind around that and it sounds so arrogant to even say that, but we're rich. Like let me tell you how rich some of you are. You're so rich that you only have to work five out of seven days of the week and in those five days, you actually make enough money to pay like for your housing, to pay for your food, to pay for your health insurance. You only have to work five days. If you get two days, you don't have to work at all. That's how rich you are. Listen, some of you are so rich that you live in a family of like five or six people that are in your house, and you only have to send one of those people in your house out of the house to work to make money, and that one person in five days makes enough money to cover the expenses for all the people in that home to live for seven days. Now again, I know for a lot of us that doesn't sound really rich, but you have to understand in most parts of our world, that's inconceivable. Now, we're uncomfortable with this. We're uncomfortable with this idea that we're rich, and I get it, that years ago I was at a soccer game with my kids, 
one of my boys was playing, and after the game, there's like seven or eight of us parents that are just kind of standing around, and we're just talking, talking about life, talking about our kids, all that stuff, and I'm there with these adults, and this, I think he's like five years old, this kid, a lot of confidence this kid had, comes kind of walking up into the group, right, and he's kind of standing in the middle, just kind of staring at all of us while we're talking, and out of nowhere, the kid points right at me, and he says, you're rich, and I'm like looking behind me, like, who are you talking to? Like, I'm not, no, and again, he says it again out loud, you're rich. And now I'm looking at the other parents like, not me, I'm not rich, I promise. I'm not rich, let me show you the car I drive, I promise. I'm not, like, I'm so uncomfortable in this moment. I'm like, somebody shut this kid up. You know, some of you have kids, you know, who just blurt out anything in public places. You know, you've got kids like that and you get nervous when you're in the grocery store or when there's somebody in front of you in line. I get it, but you need to know, nobody actually likes your kid. Um, I'm kidding, rich kids love your kids. But um, like, it was so uncomfortable in this moment. And a few minutes later, his mom comes up and Keith still said, the kid said it like seven or eight times. I'm, not, I'm trying to get away so bad. And she's like, I'm sorry, he's confused. He likes your hair. He's trying to say you're cool, but he keeps saying you're rich. I'm like, whatever, but please get your kid away from me. <laughs> because it is so uncomfortable, this concept that we're rich. We're rich, every one of us. We've been blessed in unbelievable ways. I remember growing up, um, we were rich, but I didn't realize we were rich because I saw so many other people that had more than we had. And so growing up, I always wanted to be rich. I can remember when I was like 10 years old, going to this kid's house, a friend of mine from church, and they had this, this playroom, right? And he had all of his toys in his playroom. They had a ping pong table. He had a Pac-Man arcade game over in a corner, which was unbelievable. We stayed up all night playing that. And I remember thinking, wow, like, because I know almost everybody these days has like a bonus room in their house where you have all your kids' toys or whatever. But back then, that, that wasn't like, at least in my world, that wasn't real common, right? I'm like, I had toys, but this kid had a room for his toys. And I'm like, this is really unbelievably, like, you know, impressive. And uh, it's so funny to me that a lot of us grow up wanting to be rich, but then when we become rich, we don't want to admit that we're rich. And we can deny it all that we want, but most of our lives are surrounded by rich people problems, right? Almost all my problems are rich people problems, right? I, you watch me on social media, I'll complain about a flight being delayed, right? It's just killing me that this flight's been delayed another hour. Those are rich people kind of problems. I complain about my computer running slow. I complain about uh, not having strong enough Wi-Fi everywhere that I go, right? These are rich people problems. I get annoyed that I have to stop and fill my car up with gas again. I had to make two trips to the grocery store because I forgot some things on the first trip. Friday, I had to clean out my garage, that's a rich people problem, cleaning out your garage, right? There's a vast majority of our world doesn't have a roof over their head and I have a house for my car. Those are rich people problems. But none of us actually feel rich. Gallup did this, I thought it was a fascinating study uh, where they used all these different socioeconomic groups, thousands of people were part of the study to define what rich is. 
And as you might imagine, like everybody kind of had a different definition of what rich was. The common theme throughout that entire study was almost every socioeconomic group defined rich as about double what they currently had. So if somebody made $30,000 a year, they thought people who made $60,000, that's rich, right? They're not rich, but those people that make 60, they're rich. People who made 100 thought people who made 200,000 were rich, and it went on and on and on. Nobody felt like they were actually rich. We think that rich is the other guy, right? Rich isn't just like having extra. Rich is having as much extra as the person who has more extra than you. That's what rich is. And the big problem is you can't really learn to be rich until you admit that you are rich. So, on the count of three, I want you all to say, I'm rich. Okay, you ready? One, two, three, I'm rich. Say it like you really mean it though. One, two, three, I'm rich. Yeah, doesn't that feel good? It really doesn't, it just feels terrible. To say that out loud that I'm rich, but you have to to really begin to understand this passage, all right? So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Again, it starts with command those who are rich. We've already landed on the fact that that's the vast majority of us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now there are, once you get past this concept that you're rich and this passage applies to you, there are four just real practical things in here that can help us understand, again, not how to get rich, but just simply how to be rich, right? So there's four of them. So I'm just gonna set these up for you, all right? The first one is this. The very first thing he says is don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. I think it's interesting that that's the very first thing that Paul points out in this passage. He's like, be honest, but don't be arrogant about it. There's something about money, at least in our culture today, there's something about money that along with that comes this temptation to kind of be arrogant about it. And we tend to think, if we're honest, nobody says this kind of stuff out loud, but if we're really honest, we tend to think the more money we make, the smarter we are but there's not necessarily a correlation between those two, is there, right? Just because you have more money does not mean that you're smarter than somebody who doesn't have money. I can make this point pr pretty easily, right? In that um, if you were to trace back and look over your finances, let's just say over the past 20 years, I know that doesn't apply to everybody, but let's just say you look back over the past 20 years or the past 10 years, my guess is that most of you make more money today than you did 10 years ago or you did 20 years ago. And I know there's inflation and all that stuff, but you make more money today than you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And yet, isn't it true that you still have a lot of the financial pressure that you had back then when you made half of what you make now? See, I think it's so interesting that there are actually people who make half of what I make and they make half of what you make and they don't have that financial pressure. And they look at people like me and you and they're like, how can they make that much money and still have all this financial pressure? Because making more money does not necessarily make you smarter. And there's something else that money can do to you. Money can start to actually make you think you're more important. 
And you don't mean for this to happen, right? Again, this, this was never the goal. But there's something inside of you. The more money you get, the greater the temptation is to think that somehow you have more value in this world, that somehow you're more important. But what you have to understand, if you really want to get good at being rich, is that it's not who you are. It's just something you have. The people that I know in this world, the people in my life who are really good at being rich are people who have figured out it's not who they are. It is not their identity. It's just something that they have. And that's really the first step to being good at being rich. Don't be arrogant about it. Don't tie your identity to it, right? It, 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 it's this thing, but it's not you, right? The second thing that he says he says, don't trust it, right? The way he put it in that passage we just read, he says, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Now, if any of you um, kind of um, have spent much time investing money, you know how uncertain money can actually be. So he's saying here, listen, don't trust it. The more money you have, the easier it is to start to think that that money can do something for you that it was never designed to do. So I've seen this in, in my life. So uh, when I graduated from college, I started a church. I was a senior in college. And uh, I graduate, and I'm pastoring this little church. And um, a couple of the guys kind of came together with me, and they helped me buy a place to live. So we bought a trailer for $3,500. And as you can imagine, uh, I, I got what I paid for. Uh, it was a $3,500 trailer, and it, it was a piece of junk, but it was a roof over my head, right? And I, I still remember in, in, the, in the little bedroom, it was like, it was, I think it was two-bedroom. Maybe it was, I can't remember. It, no, yeah, it was two-bedroom. It was, it was nice, $3,500 trailer, two-bedroom. And in my bedroom, there was a hole, like, so there was, there was no subfloor, like a hole that big, right? No subfloor underneath it. They just put carpet over it. So it looked okay, you just couldn't step there. Because if you stepped there, you were gonna fall through the trailer, right? And so I can remember, I'd get up in the middle of the night, I'd have to go pee or something. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't like to open my eyes at night, right? I, I wanna try to be able to go back to sleep. So I can remember, like, I always had to go to the bathroom and at night it's like this. I knew where that hole was and I just took a gigantic step over it. And it's just kind of funny, that, that idea, right? So I had this trailer. And I had a beat up old car and I had a dog. That's all I had. And I was happy as can be. So much peace in my life. I'm living out God's purpose for my life. But the reality is with a trailer, a dog and a beat up car, it was very easy for me in that season to say, God, this is all yours. Every bit of it. The trailer, the beat up car and the dog, it's all yours, right? I trust you with all this. I don't look to these material possessions in any way. I'm looking to you for my hope and my peace. Very easy to do when you don't have a lot. But the truth is, as time has gone on and God has blessed me in different ways in my life, it's become increasingly difficult to not look to that money or to look to those things to give me something that it was simply never designed to give me. And so Paul's given us a really important warning, right? Because along with these blessings that some of us get throughout life become a whole different set of temptations. And, and there's something about like th th this money issue that, have you ever had this conversation? It's like this. Um, 
Maybe you had this with your spouse. Maybe you had this conversation with some friends. But the conversation went something like this. We make this much money right now. But can you imagine if we made this much money? I think that we wouldn't argue about money anymore. I think that, like, you know, we wouldn't fight about money anymore. I think if instead of making this much money, if we made this much money, we'd have so much more peace in our life. Can anybody just be honest right now and say you've had a similar conversation to that at some point in your life? Sure you have. I think almost everybody has. They've thought, oh, I make this, but if I make that, I'm gonna have a lot more peace and I'll have a lot less issues, right? That should always be a red flag to all of us because in that moment, what you're thinking is that money can do something for you that it was never designed to do. What happens is we fall into this trap and what we start to believe is what I need to keep me from worrying about money is more money. So we go out and we get more money. And what do we think about? More money. So if you're trying to be good at being rich, you have to understand you can earn money, you can spend money, you can save money, you can invest money, you can print it all out and take a big bath in it as far as I care. But whatever you do, don't trust it. Don't trust it. Don't start to look at it as if it's gonna give you something it was never designed to give you. And I'm just telling you, the more of it you have, the harder it is to wrestle with that. It's exactly why Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you're gonna hate the one, or you're gonna love the other, or you're gonna be devoted to the one, and you're gonna despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what Jesus is saying, he's just being honest. He's saying there's going to be this tension throughout your entire life there's this tension that we all have with money. No matter how much of it you have, right? There's this tension. There's this temptation to look to it, to give you something it was never designed to give you. So money can be a fantastic tool, but it makes a lousy God. It's a fantastic tool. Use it for good. Use it to bless your family. Use it to bless the people around you. Use it to get some stuff that you've always wanted to get. But listen, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that it's more than a tool and that it's somehow a God because it will not deliver. It will be an empty promise every single time. Here's the third thing that Paul says. He says, don't forget it's all a gift. He says, tell them to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This is fundamental, right? This is fundamental to what it means to being good at being rich. You have to recognize its source. You have to recognize that everything that I have, everything that you have, it's a gift from God. And whenever you forget the source, uh, you fail miserably at actually being rich. Uh, I used to take my oldest son, Jet, I used to take him to McDonald's every Friday when he was little. That was kind of our thing that we would do together. We'd go to McDonald's, he got a Happy Meal. And uh, we're at McDonald's one day, he's five, maybe six, and we're sitting there, and uh, I love McDonald's fries. They're my favorite. I mean, we could, we could have you know, a whole debate on who has the best fries, but I see a lot of heads shaking no. But I'm telling you, I like, do y'all have five guys here? They have good fries too. They have really, oh, I can smell them right now. Mm. 
so I love fries, but I love McDonald's fries. I like the salt on them. I think they're perfect. We're having a happy meal. Actually, I'm not having a happy meal. I chose not to eat McDonald's that day. He's eating McDonald's. He's eating a happy meal, and he's eating his fries one by one. That's what kids do. I don't know why they do that. When you're an adult, you grab a handful of fries, right? He's eating one fry at a time, and I'm watching him, and I'm like, hmm, I think I want a fry. So I reach over to his little bag, and I pull the longest fry in that bag out, And the moment that I do that, he puts his hand on the bag, and he says, mine. And I'm like, really? You think those are, did you buy those fries, son? He's just staring at me, he's five years old, right? Like, did you buy those fries? He's like, no, dad, dad bought you those fries. I think in this moment right now, in this little exchange, you have forgotten the source of the fries. So let me explain something to you, son. Like, Those are actually my fries. (laughs) I could take the whole bag of fries if I want to, right? Those are my fries. Or you know what else I could do, son? Like, this is crazy, but I have this little card right here in my wallet, and I can take it up there to the counter, and guess what? I could buy $500 worth of fries. I could bury you in fries (laughs) if I wanted to, right? You've forgotten the source of your fries. And, and what I was, and I really, the conversation was much more gentle than that just sounded. But <laughs> what I was trying to help him understand is, hey, buddy, I actually don't need that fry. I don't need you. I, I can go. What I want is for you to be generous, right? What I want is for you to recognize the source. Right? Anytime you forget the source, you forget where it comes from. Again, we fail at being Rich. See, what you gotta understand, this is not about guilt. I hope you get that, right? Nobody here is trying to make anybody feel guilty for what they have, for what they've earned, for what they've been gifted. That's not the point. It's nothing to do with guilt. It just has to do with being grateful, right? I want you guys to succeed. I think we need more Christians in the workplace and in entertainment and in every category. I want you to be wildly successful. I want you to win the Oscar. I want you to 5X your company. I want you to 10X your investments. I think that's great. Take your Christian values out there and knock it out of the park, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But in that process, just never ever forget the source and stay grateful for every single thing God's blessed you with. And the fourth thing that Paul says is he says, don't make the mistake of thinking that it's just for you. So that last verse that we're looking at today, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. It's like, hey, tell all the rich people, I don't want them to just be average citizens. No, I want them to be rich in good deeds, right? Not just good deeds, but to actually be rich in good deeds. I want them spending time strategizing about how they can take the things that they've been blessed with and use those things and resources to bless other people. I want them to be rich in good deeds. And man, I tell you what, the early church, they got that. And the early church exchanged their truth for Jesus' truth, and in the process, they changed the world. I love, I love studying movements, like any kind of, uh, it could be a political movement, a religious movement, like it's fascinating to me because there, there are certain building blocks that need to be in place for there to be a sustained, effective movement in, in our culture. 
right? What's very interesting to me, when you look back at the history of Christianity, you go back 2,000 years ago when it all first started, it, it's fascinating to track that movement. And I think one of the things that is like, makes the Christian faith so solid is the fact that it's still around, that it survived. Because the truth is, early Christianity in those first 300 years, it had zero of the building blocks that you actually need to build a sustained movement. Zero. You think about the early Christians, first century Christians, they were not organized. They had no buildings. They were not recognized by the government. For the first 300 years, they were made completely powerless. They were persecuted politically. They were tortured physically. And yet somehow, that movement continued to grow. And while those early Christians did not have the typical building blocks for a sustained movement, the appeal and the influence that the movement had can really be traced back in history to their generosity. Their generosity is what really put them on the map. It wasn't their wealth because they had very little of it. It wasn't their theology because while their theology was accurate 2,000 years ago, that theology sounded whacked. Like it just did, like we're, we're very comfortable. A lot of us grew up in a culture where it's not that big of a stretch for us to believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross, resurrected three days later, right? There's been a lot of information that backs that up. There's all kinds of historical information that we have access to that they didn't, right? So it wasn't their, their money because they had very little of it. It wasn't their power because they had no power. It wasn't their theology, because that sounded so way out there in left field at that time 2,000 years ago. What made them impossible to ignore was their compassion and their generosity. That's what set them apart. It set them apart. During this time, in fact, if you go back to the culture during that time, the whole Greek-Roman era, the rules for how you treated people were very different than they are today. 2,000 years ago in that Greek-Roman era, um, if you were generous, and if is really the key here, if you were generous, the idea was you were only generous to people who could do something back for you in return. That was a whole, like, that was a whole idea of generosity in that culture, is find somebody who has something that you want and do something really generous for them in hopes that they then owe you. That's the way it worked back then. That, that's the way you got ahead. So if you had money and you had power, you had a really good chance of holding on to that money and that power because there's always a line of people who wanted to be generous to you with their money and power because you had money and power to return to them. But if you had nothing, you're messed over. That's why the Bible talks so much about widows and orphans. Right, because in this culture, widows and orphans were penniless and they were powerless and there was zero hope of them ever getting out of that position because nobody was gonna be generous to them because they had nothing to give in return. So that's what's going on in that culture when Christianity is exploding because now you have this group of people who are following a whole different set of rules. And why are they following this set of rules? Because they've exchanged their truth for Jesus' truth. Jesus would say things like this in Matthew 5. He said, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And everybody listening to Jesus is like, yep. That's exactly the way it works in our world. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? 
I give you something, you give something back to me. That's just the way that it works. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I'll do that anywhere but Michigan. I'm not giving up my coat here. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You know what that was about? There was this little kind of crazy law back then where a Roman soldier, they had a, a lot of heavy equipment that they're carrying, their armor, sword, all that kind of stuff. So they wrote this law in where a Roman soldier at any time could grab a Jewish person and force them to carry all their stuff with them for one mile. But that's all you were legally obligated to do. One mile, you just drop their stuff and you keep going, right? Jesus like, hey, when you get to the end of the mile that you're required to do, turn to them and say, wanna go another? See, what he's talking about here is just crazy generosity, right? What he's, what he's talking about is this and then some kind of mentality where you don't do just what's required of you, but you go above and beyond and you're generous, right? He says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Again, he's going back to conventional wisdom. He's going back to this idea that the world that you live in is upside down and we're gonna do things completely different. He says, I tell you, love your enemies and I want you to pray for those who persecute you. And maybe the early Christians were just crazy, but in those first 300 years, they did not think following the words of Jesus was optional. They actually believed it, and they exchanged their truth for his truth, and in doing so, they changed the world. They changed the whole world because of their generosity and compassion. They showed a whole new like, brand of love that Jesus was dealing with. It's a beautiful thing. It changed the world. It happened once, and I believe it can happen again. I believe it's possible for Christianity to continue to grow, to continue to spread. But the only way that that happens at the end of the day is if people who call themselves followers of Jesus exchange their truth for his truth and try and spend all their try time trying to figure out how to get rich, they realize that they actually are rich and they learn how to be rich. That's what it's all about. And so again, this isn't about making you feel guilty. Like, I'm grateful that God's blessed you with what he's blessed you with, right? Grateful, and I hope he continues to do so, and I hope you continue to apply the skills and the gifts that he's given you in whatever it is that you do, and that is a nonstop flow of things coming into your life. But my prayer for you is that you never allow that to become something that makes you arrogant or you think you're smarter or you think you have more value than somebody else. I pray you never confuse that with anything other than the fact that it's a tool and a blessing. It's not who you are. It's what you've been given. And my prayer for you is that you'll be generous with it, that you'll constantly reflect back to the source. You know where it came from and that you understand it was never intended. All the things that you have in your world in your life, in your family. It was never intended just for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. And God, we just pray that um, you would continue to open up our hearts and our minds to this topic. I think there's a lot of us, including myself, who sometimes get really defensive 
when somebody wants to talk to me about my money. But therein lies the problem because it's not really my money. It's all yours. It's all yours. And God, all I'm asking of myself and everyone else that claims to be a follower of yours is that we would put money in its proper place. That we'd understand that it is a tool. It's not who we are. It's not our identity. That we don't look to it to give us something it was never designed to give us. That no matter how much of it we get, it will never give us the peace. It will never give us the satisfaction that we sometimes convince ourselves that it will. And most importantly, God, I pray we never start to think that it's all just for us and our wants and our needs and our desires. There's a greater purpose to it all. A greater purpose, and you've called us to a greater purpose. You've called those of us who claim to be followers of you and have been blessed, those of us who are rich, you've called us to be rich in good deeds. This really is an act of surrender. It's a surrender of our will. It's a surrender of our desire. It's a surrender of our resources. It's us coming to you and saying, Lord, we've trusted you with our eternity, so why in the world would we not trust you with our life and trust you with our resources? So God, use us. May our life be of service to you and to those that you love. For it's in your name we pray, amen.